Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Um, back to another episode of talking about early tools. Uh, we're talk talking about the materials here, the forest, wood, um, how the forest regenerates. Tree in competition with tree and other species of tree, its own, its own species and things of this nature. So, so let's uh, put our minds to the uh, to the forest floors. So. You know, generations um, would would live on a certain area, and and you know, when an organization, when a civilization died, or they moved on. So after half a century or so, they returned to reoccupy the sites, or another civilization came back to reoccupy a site, only to abandon it again after the same length of tenancy. They repeated this pattern of occupation and abandonment in a regular cycle for around a thousand years, leaving archaeologists with scores of layers to pick through and a mystery to ponder. Early civilizations. The key to is the mystery. They discovered the mystery was wood. As the population built up, the people had to travel further and further to find firewood and building material. When the situation became intolerable, they left. They left because there was no wood. After the people were gone, the forest could recover, and when it did, the people returned. Used it up and moved on was a reasonable way to deal with resources back when there were places to move on to. Medieval Europe faced the same problem of dwindling resources, but given its greater population density, and established cities, moving on was not a practicable solution. In typical fashion, the members of the ruling class responded to the crisis by carving out a big piece of the pie and claiming it as their own. Indeed, the word forest originally meant land reserved for the exclusive use of the king and his cronies. It could include open land as well as wooded, a forester was one man, usually, who guarded the forest from encroaching peasants, a cop of sorts. Pe peasants were given some rights. They could legally gather dead limbs and from the tree or for fuel, breaking them off by hook or crook. It wasn't enough. By the 13th century in Germany, there were local regulations restricting the grazing of goats and sheep in cut-over areas to give the trees a chance to come back. Early conservation. So, exports were also forbidden, and only dry wood could be used for fuel. Soon it was required that a man plant six oak trees and six fruit trees before he could be married. An early form of management for sustained yield. In Britain, the story is much the same except more so. Timber use was closely regulated, and the expanding nation was running out of island. The new world turned out to be just the thing for the pocketbooks of the lords and ladies, and for the stomachs of the huddled masses as well. What they found on this land was a superorganism, a full-blown symphony of life, the majesty of an ecosystem at full maturity, 
a biological civilization, civilization of infinite complexity with interrelationships far more intricate than the economies of man and more diverse than the most untouched of the forest of the world. Here were trees that had not been seen by Europeans since they were fighting cave bears with rocks. When the ice ages survived, the cold moved steadily across Europe and America, forcing the trees to move ahead of it. Imagine trees moving ahead of the ice. So trees may be slow, but they can outrun a glacier. In North America, the trees made a steady withdrawal to the south, moving down between the two continental mountain ranges to wait until the ice receded. It's a long wait. When the warming came, they all moved back north to reclaim their formal, former territories. The European trees, however, were not so fortunate. As they were forced south, southward, they found the retreat blocked by a chain of mountain ranges that went from east to west rather than from north to south, as in America. The less cold-tolerant trees, such as the hickories and magnolias, died out, leaving post-glacial Europe with a short deck. But the hand of man had begun upon this land, however lightly. Though lacking the iron and steel of the Europeans, the native people possessed a powerful tool, fire, and they used it to a great effect. Although massive, the mature forest produces relatively little food for wildlife and man. The Indians quite deliberately went about modifying the environment to suit their own needs. They opened up great areas by setting fires to kill off the timber overstory. The sunlight on the soil provided a perfect growing bed for the wild berries that were essential to the diets of both man and beast. Wildlife and human populations grew together. Around the charred stumps of the great trees, saplings sprang up from the still-living root systems. These saplings were of a dimension that could easily and readily be put to use without resort to elaborate technology. Even the great trees were felled with fire by burning around them, burning their waste until they fell. Once again, they were hollowed into canoes by more burning and scraping. The native population influenced the environment in other ways as well. The black locust tree was not indigenous to the coastal reaches of Virginia, yet it was found growing there when the first Europeans arrived. This tree had originally been restricted to the Appalachian range of mountains. When the Indians from that area migrated down to the coast, this tree came with them, and it flourished as well. The Indians used black locust wood for hunting bows, but whether the tree made the move as captive or camp follower, we'll never know. For the first few years, the Europeans were quite unprepared to deal with the new environment. Their primary objective was to get rich quick, gold being the ultimate measure of wealth in those days. Some of the first people to wade ashore were indeed goldsmiths who were expected to go right to work on the golden shores casting bars to send back to England. When it turned out that the beaches on the western reaches of the Atlantic were as sandy and goldless as those on the eastern side, the settlers turned to the extraction of baser commodities. One of those great resources essential to the well-being of Great Britain was tar and pitch, derived from coniferous trees. 
An island nation, Britain depended on strong merchant and naval fleets for its economic might and power and military security. Wooden hauled ships sailing in warm water face an enemy far more destructive than a Spanish man of war shipworms. Unless the hull is protected by a copper sheathing or a pitch coating, the shipworms will destroy it. Britain's only source for tar and pitch was in the Baltic of Northern Europe, an area controlled by Sweden. Unfortunately for the British, Sweden, which was not always inclined to be friendly to its rival power, could cut off the supply of this strategic commodity at will. Another source had to be found, and the call for rich land of British America looked just like the place. The second boatload of settlers for Jamestown included a team of Polish tar experts who began the development of the American naval stores industry. Trees were slashed to produce turpentine and rosin. Stumps and knots were burned in smoldering mounds to release the tar and pitch. Masts were another important resource for the British government. Prime trees were marked with a royal broad arrow to claim them as crown property, even if they were on land already appropriated by the colonists. This became an early cause of friction between the parties involved. The beginnings of settlement and commerce all up and down the North American coastline were rather shaky at the start. The typical British immigrant was not used to dealing with such massive timber. The ancient cycle of destruction, waste and shortage, would have been repeated more severely than it would have been if the old world body of laws and traditions regarding conservation that the settlers carried with them. Still, though here and there in short supply, timber was mainly regarded as the hindrance to agriculture and was destroyed. This attitude was reflected in the new usage that the word lumber gained in the new world. In the British usage, it meant discarded material, cluttered junk. In America, this was an apt description of the masses of wood that were always in the way of farmers. Abundance was not the only unfamiliar condition they had to deal with and get used to. Britain's strength was built on oak. Although the New World possesses great oaks of a size and trueness of grain that astounded one and all, the settlers soon discovered that many of the native pines were even stronger. In the ancient forest where trees were centuries old and hundreds of feet tall, the growth rate of the giant trees was very slow. Consequently, the annual rings formed in this old-growth wood were quite close together. In pine timber, slow growth and tight rings make tough, dense, strong wood, just as one might expect. In oaks, however, the effect is just the opposite. Slow growth in oak makes for weaker, more porous wood of a lower density. The reason for this is that every spring an oak has to put out a new set of leaves before the next tree, or it's out of business. To get this mass of vegetation out, massive amounts of water must be put up through the new plumbing that forms in the wood each spring. These large vessels form a band of consistent width in every growth ring, followed by the line of denser, 
stronger wood formed during the summer growing season. The slower an oak tree grows, the closer together these bands of weaker spring wood will be. A slow-grown red oak can become so porous that it appears to be 90% of absolutely nothing. For this reason, particularly in the South, where the remarkably strong longleaf pine grew, flooring in the oldest houses of America up and down the East Coast, houses built with the first growth forest was gone and the vigorous second growth forest was being cut reflect the changes in these type of materials. They had floors of oak then. The fast-growing pine is weak and the fast-growing oak is strong. Other changes took place as the land became more settled. The control of wildfires in the coastal regions saved mature timber, but also begun a change in the species composition of the forest. When longleaf pine is in an immature grass stage, of its first few years, it is often attacked by a fungus that stunts its growth. The annual fires that swept through its range, however, singed off this fungus, yet left the young tree unharmed. The fires that came with the Europeans were less frequent but larger, owing to a buildup of fuel. If the fungus didn't get it, the big fires would. The range of the longleaf pine is now considerably smaller than it once was. So the land was cleared and the forest retreated. Vast areas were laid waste by charcoal burners to fuel the furnaces of the fledgling iron industry. Farmers felled and fenced and burned, but always the forest crept back, and the abandoned field first starts to grow up in broom sedge. Pioneer species that can do well in the open, such as pines, take root and soon cover the sedge and the plow-furrowed clay. The pine may be seeded so quickly from surrounding trees that to survive a tree must grow quick and tall, shedding useless lower branches that would require nutrients that are hidden from the sun by the neighboring trees. It is a race to the death because any tree that is left behind in the shade will surely die. The pines return, straight and tall, in silent warfare with one another. Interspecies warfare. Meanwhile, the wood of the abandoned farmhouse has slowly making its way down to the soil again as it rots. The working of termites and fungal mycelia. The oak tree that was once spared and, and nurtured by the farmer as a shade tree, though, still grows. Unlike a forest-grown oak, which must grow taller and clearer to reach the sun, this tree grew in the open, and its low branches reach out all around, holding its space against the aggressive young pines growing up around it. Its turn is to come, for the pines have changed the space beneath themselves to a shady, protected environment, perfect for the growth of young hardwoods, and the acorns are ready to sprout. Though the carpet of needles they break, young oaks and hickories winding their way up to the sun. Each year the pine seeds fall, but unless they land in a clearly sunny spot, they will not be able to grow. Every space vacated by a dying pine is seized by the hardwoods, which slowly take over the forest and force out the pines. Beneath the hardwood canopy, though, 
There are trees that can live in the shade and never try to reach the top. The forest develops an understory composed of shade-tolerant trees, such as dogwood, holly, and sourwood. The old shade tree oak may still be living, its spreading branches a clear marker to lead you to the rubble mound of the collapsed chimney in the decayed house, and the still-flowering daffodils to speak of the family who came and went. Other immigrants made their way into the forest. Trees were carried far from their original homes to live as ornaments on the farm. From across the mountains came the Kentucky coffee tree and the Osage orange. From Asia came the china berry and the mimosa. They brought with them beauty, but also disaster. Around the turn of this century, a fungus that was relatively harmless to oriental chestnut found its way to these shores. This blight was, a, was fatal to our native chestnuts as smallpox had been to the mandans. The chestnuts died a devastating shock to the mammal population that had fatted on these sweet nuts for thousands of years. The effect of this tragedy on man was not nearly as profound as it was on the animals, but it reached us nonetheless. I came across a touching newspaper story saying, the headline read, says he found the cure for chestnut blight in Bible. The photo showed a man, a grim but faithful one, putting a dying chestnut tree with his concoction of biblical ingredients. The only cure, though, may be one of more ancient than of the scriptures. It is a foolish parasite that kills its host. A fungus can feel foolish only in evolutionary terms, a slow-thinking reaction at best. But the offended tree is reacting, too. The old, resistant tree passes on its strength to its young though time, they will come to live together. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.